والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. I uh, attended uh, the art of manners class uh, with Al Maghrib uh, taught by Ustad uh, Majid Mahmoud, good friend of mine uh, from uh, from Windsor who moved to Dearborn, uh, Michigan, uh, across uh, across from Windsor into America, and. Uh, Inshallah, a really, really good brother, Hafiz, um, studied uh, with, uh, with an online university, Islamic university, and uh, Mashallah, a very well-rounded individual, you know, it's very easy to talk to and very easy to listen to, a uh, very good uh, teacher, Mashallah, you know, he, he was given a very good topic um, to teach, called the Art of Manners. And mashallah, it's been a really, really eye-opening, you know, class because uh, we in, uh, you know, in the society we live in uh, are given so much knowledge uh, about how to be smart, you know, but we don't learn how to live smart, you know, and uh, we know we know how to. Acquire knowledge to the point of being productive individuals in society, but you know we don't learn to be uh, productive with each other, you know, as human beings, you know, and uh, we don't, we we really technically don't have manners towards people or towards our Creator and. Even towards ourselves, you know, because manners entails a level of respect one has uh, towards oneself, towards others, and towards Allah. And I find this is one of the biggest challenges in the society we live in. That if we do not address, it leads to uh, it leads to a lot of mental health issues. not addressing it at a very young age uh, and uh, it leads to a lot of you know, emptiness and pockets of, of experiences that, are, that are, need to be fulfilled are not fulfilled uh, that manners from parents would uh, towards their children uh, would highly be effective in the child's upbringing. Again, you know, some families have it, some families don't. You know, manners of loving one's child, you know, rearing him to love, to love them and to teach them to love others. You know, um, it's, an, it's an art. It's an art, no doubt. I think the Christians, uh, you know, well-rounded in this art of love um, and there's so many arts of manners you know the art of love is one big challenge especially in a society of materialism and, and such distractions that one doesn't even have time to love you know? uh, or learn how to love so you know listening to this ebook driving to 
Windsor, uh, sorry, driving to rather, uh, driving to Montreal, and uh, while I'm driving back, listening to this wonderful ebook that was recommended to me by a brother that taught me Muay Thai, and I'll reward him for, you know, referencing this book that was referred to him uh, by a psychologist when him and his wife were having problems. Not every relationship has problems. But, you know, you're blessed if you're able to go to the right people that have the right resources, um, you know, to uh, allow you to, you know, focus on what uh, what you need to focus on to, to rectify, you know, these, these, uh, these issues um, that we end up facing. Um, that end up causing our mental health issues that eventually trickle into uh, our relationships. Um, we can tend to hide behind our, our, our mental health issues. Uh, you know, when we don't have a partner, but when you start living with someone, you can even hide it. You know, from your family members. Maybe your family members are causing it. You know, uh, before you get into marriage. I find you can't hide it from your spouse you know, uh, for not too long. Eventually she'll, or he, will catch up with what's going on with you, you know? Realize that they married somebody with baggage they didn't realize uh, they, they inherited from the marriage. And, you know, it's not, it's not a bad thing, but... Uh, Sometimes I think, you know, we all need to go through counseling, personal counseling, you know, before we have to end up in marriage counseling because our personal issues are so ingrained in us that we're able to be so passive about it and hide it um, from our, our future spouse, our current spouse, such that eventually we're not very good at hiding it anymore. And our spouses eventually realize got some issues and uh, they think we've deceived them that we you know we, we hid this from them and uh, it's, you know, it's not necessarily the case it's something that maybe it was a weakness in us that we didn't want to highlight but again it's something that maybe we needed to address through personal counseling before we got into the marriage so again something I highly I would highly highly recommend everybody do is go through personal counseling um, you know it may cost money thing I can tell you is along with your dental benefits and your your vision benefits there's something called uh, paramedical benefits you know we all spend the time to go get a massage and relax you know from a tense physical tension but that mental tension needs to be addressed as well could be from work could be from our personal experiences from the past and we need to need to address them you know if we need to just talk it talk it out to unleash bottled up emotions that we've locked up because we didn't you know we don't want to face them we don't have you know, it's a full-time job possibly to face them um you know we're just so distracted with work and, and possibly family that we don't really want to address it and i think something that needs to be uh invested in um along with making money and spending time with family is, is, is your own personal health personal mental health, yeah, which requires an investment 
sitting with a social worker uh, who can listen to you and understand where they need to take you to, to rectify your, your mental health and, and put you in a, in a place where you, you're healthy enough to be in a relationship so you can be productive in a relationship rather than bringing baggage of mental health issues into a relationship. Notice there's a lot, a lot of relationships that are possibly falling apart because they're bringing mental health issues, no personal mental health issues into the into the marriage, um, which are basically clouded by you know that whole whole uh, honeymoon phase uh, and due to the distractions of life, uh, you know, all personal interests. Overlook the mental health issues of our partners until you know we finally get comfortable with them and they start to learn or our, our personal health issues tend to be exposed when we're in stressful situations either with our spouses or outside of our relationships um, caused by work or, or other people, other external stressors. So I find social workers, professional psychiatrists, uh, mental health professionals that can help us, you know, because look at it's not going to help us, a lot of times it's not gin, you know, and I mean, you can, you can go through that, you can go through that process of getting exercise and see if it is gin, you can do that, but I think a lot of times it's not necessarily the case. I think it's healthier to go to a psychologist or a, or a social worker that that's, can identify, you know, your issues, uh, mental health issues that obviously possibly stem from traumatic experiences from the past. So I've been listening to this again, this this ebook, uh, this audiobook, based on a book. To me by uh, by my my Muay Thai teacher um, from his psychologist, a therapist, family counselor, um, called the Five Love Languages. The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Very very good book. Mashallah. May Allah guide him to Islam and may Allah reward him for at least in this dunya. If you know if, he, if Allah does not wish to guide him for his very, very clear, clear um, explanation, you know, using the analogy of love as a cup that if not filled, you know, regularly, you know, will eventually lead to a lot of relationship problems, you know, even before marriage, you need this type of love uh, cup filled by your family members. You need to fill it for your children. And uh, it starts from birth, you know, right through to adolescence, to to teenagers, to to adulthood, um, to prepare us as adults and to prepare our children uh, mentally, you know, for uh, for facing the challenges 
of life. You know, when, when you're struggling in life, having that love cup filled regularly allows you to face the challenges of life and be productive. I've noticed that with Christians and non-Muslims from this culture, they, you know, they, they, they survive off of their love cup being filled regularly. You know, as they drink from it, it becomes empty and then they have it filled again. But they can't fill it themselves. I mean, you could, possibly, you know, through worship of Allah. And, you know, if you love Allah, then Allah will love you. But because of all the distractions, the challenge to get to that level. Um, so you need, you need to acquire love through, you know, other people. You know, um, and then you know, work towards not depending on people for that love, depending on Allah. Uh, to have that love cup filled, so that you know, if you if you lose people that are filling your love cup, uh, you know, you can depend on Allah to, to fill that cup. Or you can always depend on, the, uh, on Allah to fill that cup. So if you have loss in the, in the family, loss of friendships, that of those who fill your, your love cup, um, you're hurt, but you, you, you can rely on Allah to. to you can always rely on Allah to. Your love cup. So, you use the analogy of, uh, of a cup and filling a love cup. But we 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 have different flavors of love. So he he describes it in five different flavors called the five love languages. I call it five flavors of love. So he goes through the five flavors of love. I'll, 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 I'll recap them for you uh, later. But one of the things I, I've noticed is that. Let's address when you're in a relationship where you start hating the other spouse, right? Because shaitan will come in and he'll start to you know, make you hate your spouse and, and you know, distance you from your spouse so that would lead to eventually to uh, separation and divorce. Uh, or at least separation to the point where at least it can, there's hope for, for reconciliation. Even there's hope for reconciliation. After divorce, um, you know that that that's, that that distance and space between the parties, to the, the partners, is healthy. You know, and Allah never, you know, makes a situation such a way that you, you can never take your your spouse back. And He allows you to separate from your spouse such that you're allowed to take them back twice, um, before the third time's a charm. Well, not really a charm, but the third time is just like this. You need to move on with your life, right? But it gives you opportunities to make amends, especially if you have children. Especially if there's some, you know, you've got a lot of emotional attachment. You don't want it to distract you from the rest of your life. Because again, marriage is not your life. Marriage is part of your life. You don't want it to uh, to ruin you know, other aspects of your life. So I want you to listen to this chapter, chapter 12, uh, from Gary Chapman's book, audiobook. Um, on the five love languages, and he talks, he addresses this challenge of can you love someone you hate in your relationship? If you end up starting to hate the one that you used to love, and can you start loving that person again? I want you to listen to uh, to this. It's very profound to me. Chapter 12 
Loving the Unlovely. It was a beautiful September Saturday. My wife and I were strolling through Rinalda Gardens, enjoying the flora, some of which had been imported from around the world. The gardens had originally been developed by R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco magnate, as a part of his country estate. They are now part of Wake Forest University campus. We had just passed the Rose Garden when I noticed Anne, a woman who had begun counseling two weeks earlier, approaching us. She was looking down at the cobblestone walkway and appeared to be in deep thought. When I greeted her, she was startled but looked up and smiled. I introduced her to Carolyn and we exchanged pleasantries. Then, without any lead-in, she asked me one of the most profound questions I have ever heard. Dr. Chapman, is it possible to love someone whom you hate? I knew the question was born of deep hurt and deserved a thoughtful answer. I knew that I would be seeing her the following week for another counseling appointment. So I said, Ann, that is one of the most thought-provoking questions I've ever heard. Why don't we discuss that next week? She agreed, and Carolyn and I continued on our stroll, but Ann's question did not go away. Later, as we drove home, Carolyn and I discussed it. We reflected on the early days of our own marriage and remembered that we had often experienced feelings of hate. Our condemning words to each other had stimulated hurt, and on the heels of hurt, anger. Anger held inside becomes hate. What made the difference for us? We both knew it was the choice to love. We had realized that if we continued our pattern of demanding and condemning, we would destroy our marriage. Fortunately, over a period of about a year, we had learned how to discuss our differences without condemning each other, how to make decisions without destroying our unity, how to give constructive suggestions without being demanding, and eventually, how to speak each other's primary love language. Our choice to love was made in the midst of negative feelings toward each other. When we started speaking each other's primary love language, the negative feelings of anger and hate abated. Our situation, however, was different from Anne's. Carolyn and I had both been open to learning and growing. I knew that Anne's husband was not. She had told me the previous week that she had begged him to go for counseling. She had pleaded for him to read a book or listen to a tape on marriage, but he had refused all her efforts toward growth. According to her, his attitude was, I don't have any problems. You're the one with the problems. In his mind, he was right. She was wrong. It was as simple as that. Her feelings of love for him had been killed through the years of his constant criticism and condemnation. After 10 years of marriage, her emotional energy was depleted and her self-esteem almost destroyed. Was there hope for Anne's marriage? Could she love an unlovely husband? Would he ever respond in love to her? I knew that Anne was a deeply religious person and that she attended church regularly. I surmised that perhaps her only hope for marital survival was in her faith. The next day, with Anne in mind, I began to read Luke's account of the life of Christ. I have always admired Luke's writing because he was a physician who gave attention to details and in the first century wrote an orderly account of the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus of Nazareth. In what many have called Jesus' greatest sermon, I read the following words, which I call love's greatest challenge. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, 
do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. It seemed to me that that profound challenge written almost 2,000 years ago might be the direction that Anne was looking for. But could she do it? Could anyone do it? Is it possible to love a spouse who has become your enemy? Is it possible to love one who has cursed you, mistreated you, and expressed feelings of contempt and hate for you? And if she could, would there be any payback? Would her husband ever change and begin to express love and care for her? I was astounded by this further word from Jesus' ancient sermon. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Could that ancient principle of loving an unlovely person possibly work in a marriage as far gone as Anne's? I decided to do an experiment. I would take as my hypothesis that if Anne could learn her husband's primary love language and speak it for a period of time so that his emotional need for love was met, eventually he would reciprocate and begin to express love to her. I wondered, would it work? I met with Anne the next week and listened again as she reviewed the horrors of her marriage. At the end of her synopsis, she repeated the question she had asked in Renolda Gardens. This time, she put it in the form of a statement. Dr. Chapman, I just don't know if I can ever love him again after all he's done to me. Have you talked about your situation with any of your friends, I asked. With two of my closest friends, she said, and a little bit with some other people. And what was their response? Get out, she said. They all tell me to get out, that he will never change, and that I'm simply prolonging the agony. But Dr. Chapman, I just can't bring myself to do that. Maybe I should, but I just can't believe that's the right thing to do. It seems to me that you are torn between your religious and moral beliefs that tell you it's wrong to get out of the marriage, and your emotional pain, which tells you that getting out is the only way to survive, I said. That's exactly right, Dr. Chapman. That's exactly the way I feel. I don't know what to do. I am deeply sympathetic with your struggle, I continued. You are in a very difficult situation. I wish I could offer you an easy answer. Unfortunately, I can't. Both of the alternatives you mentioned, getting out or staying in, will likely bring you a great deal of pain. Before you make that decision, I do have one idea. I'm not sure it will work, but I'd like you to try it. I know from what you have told me that your religious faith is important to you and that you have a great deal of respect for the teachings of Jesus. She nodded affirmingly. I continued, I want to read something that Jesus once said that I think has some application to your marriage. I read slowly and deliberately. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Does that sound like your husband? Has he treated you as an enemy rather than a friend? I inquired. She nodded her head affirmingly. Has he ever cursed you? I asked. Many times. 
Has he ever mistreated you? Often. And has he told you he hates you? Yes. And if you are willing, I would like to do an experiment. I would like to see what would happen if we apply this principle to your marriage. Let me explain what I mean. I went on to explain to Anne the concept of the emotional tank and the fact that when the tank is low, as hers was, we have no love feelings toward our spouse, but simply experience emptiness and pain. Since love is such a deep emotional need, the lack of it is perhaps our deepest emotional pain. I told her that if we could learn to speak each other's love language, that emotional need could be met and positive feelings could be engendered again. Does that make sense to you? I inquired. Dr. Chapman, you have just described my life. I have never seen it so clearly before. We were in love before we got married, but not long after our marriage, we came down off the high and we never learned to speak each other's love language. My tank has been empty for years, and I'm sure his has also. Dr. Chapman, if I had understood this concept earlier, maybe none of this would have happened. Well, we can't go back, Ann, I said. All we can do is try to make the future different. I would like to propose a six-month experiment. I'll try anything, Ann said. I liked her positive spirit, but I wasn't sure whether she understood how difficult the experiment would be. Let's begin by stating our objective, I said. If in six months you could have your fondest wish, what would it be? Anne sat in silence for some time, then thoughtfully she said, I would like to see Glenn loving me again and expressing it by spending time with me. I would like to see us doing things together, going places together. I would like to feel that he's interested in my world. I would like to see us talking when we go out to eat. I would like him to listen to me. I would like to feel that he values my ideas. I would like to see us taking trips together and having fun again. I would like to know that he values our marriage more than anything. Anne paused and then continued. On my part, I would like to have warm, positive feelings toward him again. I would like to gain respect for him again. I would like to be proud of him. Right now, I don't have those feelings. I was writing as Anne was speaking. When she finished, I read aloud what she had said. That sounds like a pretty lofty objective, I said. But is that really what you want, Anne? Right now, that sounds like an impossible objective, Dr. Chapman, Anne replied. But more than anything, that's what I would like to see. Then let's agree, I said, that this will be our objective. In six months, we want to see you and Glenn having that kind of love relationship. Now, let me suggest a hypothesis. The purpose of our experiment will be to prove whether or not the hypothesis is true. Let's hypothesize that if you could speak Glenn's primary love language consistently for a six-month period, that somewhere along the line, his emotional need for love would begin to be met. And as his emotional love tank filled, he would begin to reciprocate love to you. That hypothesis is built upon the idea that the emotional need for love is our deepest emotional need. And when that need is being met, we tend to respond positively to the person who is meeting it. I continued, you understand that that hypothesis places all the initiative in your hands. Glenn is not trying to work on this marriage. You are. 
This hypothesis says that if you can channel your energies in the right direction, there's a good possibility that Glenn will eventually reciprocate. I read the other portion of Jesus' sermon recorded by Luke the physician. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. As I understand that, Jesus is stating a principle, not a way to manipulate people. Generally speaking, if we are kind and loving toward people, they will tend to be kind and loving toward us. That does not mean that we can make a person kind by being kind to him. We are independent agents. Thus, we can spurn love and walk away from love or even spit in the face of love. There's no guarantee that Glenn will respond to your acts of love. We can only say that there is a good possibility he will do so. A counselor can never predict with absolute certainty individual human behavior. Based on research and personality studies, a counselor can only predict how a person is likely to respond in a given situation. After we agreed on the hypothesis, I said to Anne, now let's discuss your and Glenn's primary love languages. I'm assuming from what you have told me already that quality time may be your primary love language. What do you think? I think so, Dr. Chapman. In the early days when we spent time together and Glenn listened to me, we spent long hours talking together, doing things together. I really felt loved. More than anything, I wish that part of our marriage could return. When we spend time together, I feel like he really cares. But when he's always doing other things, never has time to talk, never has time to do anything with me, I feel like business and other pursuits are more important than our relationship. And what do you think Glenn's primary love language is? I inquired. I think it's physical touch, and especially the sexual part of the marriage. I know that when I felt more loved by him, and we were more sexually active, he had a different attitude. I think that's his primary love language, Dr. Chapman. Does he ever complain about the way you talk to him? Well, he says I nag him all the time. He also says that I don't support him, and I'm always against his ideas. Then let's assume, I said, that physical touch is his primary love language and words of affirmation is his secondary love language. The reason I suggest the second is that if he complains about negative words, apparently positive words would be meaningful to him. Now, let me suggest a plan to test our hypothesis. What if you go home and say to Glenn, I've been thinking about us and I've decided that I would like to be a better wife to you. So if you have any suggestions as to how I could be a better wife, I want you to know that I'm open to them. You can tell me now, or you can think about it and let me know what you think. But I would really like to work on being a better wife. Whatever his response, negative or positive, simply accept it as information. That initial statement lets him know that something different is about to happen in your relationship. Then, based on your guess that his primary love language is physical touch, and my suggestion that his secondary love language may be words of affirmation, focus your attention on those two areas for one month. If Glenn comes back with a suggestion as to how you might be a better wife, accept that information and work it into your plan. Look for positive things in Glenn's life and give him verbal affirmation about those things. In the meantime, stop all verbal complaints. If you want to complain about something, write it down in your personal notebook rather than saying anything about it to Glenn this month. 
Begin taking more initiative in physical touch and sexual involvement. Surprise him by being aggressive, not simply responding to his advances. Set a goal to have sexual intercourse at least once a week the first two weeks and twice a week the following two weeks. Anne had told me that she and Glenn had had sexual intercourse only once or twice in the past six months. I figured this plan would get things off dead center rather quickly. Oh, Dr. Chapman, this is going to be difficult, Anne said. I have found it hard to be sexually responsive to him when he ignores me all the time. I have felt used rather than loved in our sexual encounters. He acts as though I'm totally unimportant all the rest of the time and then wants to jump in bed and use my body. I have resented that, and I guess that's why we've not had sex very often in the last few years. Your response has been natural and normal, I assured Anne. For most wives, the desire to be sexually intimate with their husbands grows out of a sense of being loved by their husbands. If they feel loved, then they desire sexual intimacy. If they do not feel loved, they likely feel used in the sexual context. That is why loving someone who is not loving you is extremely difficult. It goes against our natural tendencies. You will probably have to rely heavily on your faith in God in order to do this. Perhaps it will help if you read again Jesus' sermon on loving your enemies, loving those who hate you, loving those who use you, and then ask God to help you practice the teachings of Jesus. I could tell that Anne was following what I was saying. Her head was nodding ever so slightly. Her eyes told me she had lots of questions. But Dr. Chapman, isn't it being hypocritical to express love sexually when you have such negative feelings toward the person? Perhaps it would be helpful for us to distinguish between love as a feeling and love as an action, I said. If you claim to have feelings that you do not have, that is hypocritical, and such false communication is not the way to build intimate relationships. But if you express an act of love that is designed for the other person's benefit or pleasure, it is simply a choice. You are not claiming that the action grows out of a deep emotional bonding. You are simply choosing to do something for his benefit. I think that must be what Jesus meant. Certainly, we do not have warm feelings for people who hate us. That would be abnormal, but we can do loving acts for them. That is simply a choice. We hope that such loving acts will have a positive effect upon their attitudes and behavior and treatment but at least we have chosen to do something positive for them. My answer seemed to satisfy Anne, at least for the moment. I had the feeling that we would discuss that again. I also had the feeling that if the experiment was going to get off the ground, it would be because of Anne's deep faith in God. After the first month, I said, I want you to ask Glenn for feedback on how you're doing. Using your own words, ask him, Glenn, you remember a few weeks ago when I told you I was going to try to be a better wife? Uh, I want to ask how you think mm -hmm. I'm doing. Whatever Glenn says, accept it as information. He may be sarcastic, he may be flippant or hostile, or he may be positive. Whatever his response, do not argue, but accept it and assure him that you are serious and that you really want to be a better wife. And if he has additional suggestions, you are open to them. Follow this pattern of asking for feedback once a month for the entire six months. Whenever Glenn gives you the first positive feedback, whenever he says, you know, Ann, I will have to admit that when you first told me that you were going to try to be better, I pretty much laughed it off. But 
I'll have to acknowledge that things are different around here. You will know that your efforts are getting through to him emotionally. He may give you positive feedback after the first month, or it may be after the second or third. One week after you receive the first positive feedback, I want you to make a request of Glenn. Something that you would like him to do. Something in keeping with your primary love language. For example, you may say to him one evening, Glenn, do you know something I would like to do? Do you remember how we used to play Scrabble together? I'd like to play Scrabble with you on Thursday night. The kids are going to be staying at Mary's. Do you think that would be possible? Make the request something specific, not general. Don't say, you know I wish we could spend more time together. That's too vague. How will you know when he's done it? But if you make your request specific, he will know exactly what you want, and you will know when he does it. He's choosing to do things for your benefit. Make a specific request of him each month. If he does it, fine. If he doesn't do it, fine. But when he does it, you will know that he is responding to your needs. In the process, you are teaching him your primary love language because the requests you make are in keeping with your love language. If he chooses to begin loving you in your mm -hmm. primary language, your positive emotions toward him will begin to resurface. Your emotional tank will begin to fill up and in time, the marriage will in fact be reborn. Dr. Chapman, I would do anything if that could happen, Ann said. Well, I responded, it will take a lot of hard work, but I believe it's worth a try. I'm personally interested to see if this experiment works and if our hypothesis is true. I would like to meet with you regularly throughout this process, perhaps every two weeks. And I would like you to keep records on the positive words of affirmation that you give Glenn each week. Also, I would like for you to bring me a list of complaints that you have written in your notebook without stating them to Glenn. Perhaps from the felt complaints, I can help you build specific requests for Glenn that will help meet some of your frustrations. Eventually, I want you to learn how to share your frustrations and irritations in a constructive way and I want you and Glenn to learn how to work through those irritations and conflicts. But during this six-month experiment, I want you to write them down without telling Glenn. Anne left, and I believe that she had the answer to her question. Is it possible to love someone whom you hate? In the next six months, Anne saw a tremendous change in Glenn's attitude and treatment of her. The first month, he was flippant and treated the whole thing lightly. But after the second month, he gave her positive feedback about her efforts. In the last four months, he responded positively to almost all of her requests, and her feelings for him began to change drastically. Glenn never came for counseling, but he did listen to some of my tapes and discuss them with Anne. He encouraged Anne to continue her counseling, which she did for another three months after our experiment. To this day, Glenn swears to his friends that I am a miracle worker. I know, in fact, that love is a miracle worker. Perhaps you need a miracle in your own marriage. Why not try Anne's experiment? Tell your spouse that you have been thinking about your marriage and have decided that you would like to do a better job of meeting his or her needs. Ask for suggestions on how you could improve. His suggestions will be a clue to his primary love language. If he makes no suggestions, guess his love language based on things he's complained about over the years. Then, for six months, focus your attention on that love language. At the end of each month, ask your spouse for feedback on how you are doing and for further suggestions. 
Whenever your spouse indicates that he is seeing improvement, wait a week and then make a specific request. The request should be something you really want him to do for you. If he chooses to do it, you will know that he's responding to your needs. If he does not honor your request, continue to love him. Maybe next month he will respond positively. If your spouse starts speaking your love language by responding to your request, your positive emotions toward him will return and in time your marriage will be reborn. I cannot guarantee the results, but scores of people whom I've counseled have experienced the miracle of love. So, I think that applies to a lot of relationships where uh, they're falling apart, they've fallen apart, and uh, there's hope, there's always hope for, for reconciliation, for, for loving that individual that you, you were intimate with and uh, you wish to be intimate with again um, somewhere deep down inside. Um, and uh, if it's not you, then the other party wishes. And what's, what's to stop you from trying? Is it, is it that, you know, you feel like you've, you've missed out in life, you know, because of your relationship, um, and you want to fill that void with what you missed out on before you consider, you know, the, uh, consider the relationship, focusing on the relationship again? So be it, you know, do what you need to do. That's the challenge in life right now is, you know, you let people fill those voids they feel need to be filled. But eventually they'll want. And, you know, by the, by the blessing and will of God, by the blessing and will of Allah, you know, there'll be mercy in that person's heart towards their spouse or even ex-husband or ex-wife to try to make it work again, you know? And uh, regardless of, you know, how bad the relationship got, you know, we all need to always reflect and be cognitive of the fact that... New text message from Iran is on. Cognitive of the fact that uh, new text message from Iran is on. That uh, I apologize for that. People texting. Um, cognitive of the fact that uh, you know we need to recognize that, especially as Muslims, that Shaitan, the devil, you know, one of his goals is to incite hatred between spouses and uh, you know we need to struggle to to uh, not allow that to happen you know um, it's it's a, it's a challenge when you know relationship um, is at the brink you know at the back is, is something that's harder to work at 
especially when you're angry or upset. Follow up to this, you know, 
after. Uh, listen to the next chapter. Inshallah.